we're spending $18 trillion a year on largely avoidable diseases. That number just keeps going up. You know, there's all kinds of political pressure right now to spend yet more on Medicare. And rather than continuing to shovel money into to trying to fix the problem, to say, okay, we know these populations have a fraction of the rate of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, and dementia. Why don't we focus on trying to set up our cities and our workplaces so they look more like a blue zone? Hi, friends, and happy new year. Welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where we bring you thoughtful and thought-provoking conversations to advance your work as a communicator for change. I'm your host, Carrie Fox. I was talking with a friend earlier this week about her 103-year-old grandmother, an incredible woman who has lived an absolutely incredible life. We were reflecting on all of the things that she's seen and how many factors contributed to her longevity, including how unlikely it is for her to have lived to 103. A black woman who grew up poor, but who never felt poor, who had a strong and loving family and a deeply rooted community, and how all of those factors have played into her long life. Today's guest knows a thing or two about making it to 100. Dan Butner is a world-renowned researcher who has spent more than a decade deeply researching the areas of the world where the largest concentration of centenarians live, blue zones, as he's called them, and as you've probably heard about, given the amount of work and books that Dan has published to date. He has explored the factors to living a long life and what it takes to get to 100. Well, Dan is out with a new book called The Blue Zones American Kitchen. And when he chatted with us, he had just released another book, The Blue Zones Challenge. So no, this week's show is a repeat. But as we start in on a new year and a new year of opportunities, it's just the right conversation for today. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. So here we are. Dan, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Absolutely delighted. And nice to meet you in person, sort of. Sort of. Someday, I hope. But it's nice to meet you through our screens. Tell me, Dan, about this Blue Zones journey. What set you off on this amazing adventure now, what, 20 years ago, is it? Yes. Well, I'm a lifelong explorer, uh, a National Geographic fellow. And I've always been interested in solving mysteries and, you know, really... A true explorer today doesn't try to climb another mountain or go to a deep jungle to find something because we've been everywhere. Uh, a true explorer has to add to the body of knowledge or somehow illuminate the human condition. And uh, I had been for about uh, seven years, I actually had a company who, uh, the Harvard archaeologists and National Geographic photographers and MIT scientists, we literally traveled around the world to solve mysteries. Uh, why the Maya civilization collapsed. Uh, I think we proved Marco Polo probably did not go to China. Uh, one of the mysteries we stumbled upon in, in 1999 was these cluster of islands in the southern prefecture of Japan had the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. And I said, aha, now there's a good mystery. You know, there are 77 million baby boomers, most of whom would like to live a little bit longer, better lives, and maybe these people have something to teach us. And we did a very facile expedition there in 1999. And when I came back, I, uh, I, I applied for a grant from the National Institutes on Aging to look for more blue zones. So blue zone is a statistically 
longest lived area that's geographically defined. And it's also confirmed. So it's not a hearsay. We actually go through census data and uh, confirm ages. NIA gave me a grant to, to fund the work to find more blue zones. And then National Geographic gave me an assignment to put together a team of experts to find the common denominator and the correlates that explain longevity. And thus, the, uh, the whole movement, as you put it, launched uh, probably in 2004, which I guess is 16 years ago, 17 years ago. And I, I mentioned to you, I've got my original copy of Blue Zone here from 2008. But bring us all up to speed on you've had some really incredible books since then, including a cookbook that has now led into this latest book that I'd love you to talk about a little bit. Yeah, so you have Blue Zones, uh, Nine Lessons from the People Who Live the Longest, and that really chronicles how we found these places and the lessons they teach us for living longer. A follow-up book, Blue Zone Solution, went about distilling the science that enables us to put that wisdom to work for long enough so we don't develop a chronic disease. Um, so, you know, most of our approach, uh, over $100 billion a year on, on uh, preventative health, we spend it on diets, exercise, and supplements. And I rather disruptively point out that these don't work. They work in the short run for a lot of people and they make a lot of money for marketers, but they fail for almost all the people all the time. So Blue Zone Solution marshals in the science to show you how to, once you know the right things to do, how you set up your life so you do it for long enough. And then uh, Blue Zone's Kitchen, uh, I'm proud to say was uh, both a number one New York Times bestseller and number one Amazon and number one Wall Street Journal bestseller. And what it did was report on a meta-analysis. If you want to know what a centenarian ate to live to be 100, you have to know what he was eating as a child and a young adult, middle age, and newly retired. This book reports about that, uh, the findings of that meta-analysis of dietary surveys done in all five blue zones. But I think the reason people really buy it is because of the National Geographic photography throughout and how we gathered a hundred original recipes from <laughs> the back roads and villages throughout the blue zones. And the, the, the main finding from that book, if you want to live to be a hundred, uh, this won't shock a lot of people, but eating a whole food plant-based diet, it's about all you have to remember. And most of, when you think of what our whole food plant-based, it tends to be greens and tubers and nuts and, and, and beans. And if you can make those simple peasant foods taste delicious, you have a killer app for Americans. Because at the end of the day, some people will eat because of their health. Some people will eat because uh, they feel sorry for the billions of animals that are crucified every year for our pork chops and bacon. And, um, oh, and some people, you know, care about the environment. But at the end of the day, what people really care about is taste. They want something delicious on their plate for their next meal. And if you can deliver that to them, then you have a killer app. And I think the Blue Zone Kitchen uh, delivers on that probably, you know, better than most. So that's, uh, that's the, the update. And um, thank you for asking me about <laughs> Authors love to talk about their books. So thanks for that question. Yeah, well, you've, you've, you've had an amazing run, an amazing journey. And it's funny, you mention 
that readers love it because of the photography. And it's true, the photography is amazing. But, you know, here you are on a communications podcast, and you as a communicator are pretty incredible. The way that you tell stories and pull people into that to that vision, right, of what the, the future could be, whether they live in a blue zone or not. Do you consider yourself a communicator? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's probably what I do better than anything. I'm pretty good at um, at research and, and assembling a team. But at the end of the day, it's uh, getting the message through to people. And I have a pretty vastly different approach to reporting on longevity or even happiness than most journalists. So most journalists, they will find a centenarian, they'll interview the centenarian, they'll tell the story, you know, tell the story of the centenarian, that centenarian will say, well, my secret of longevity is eating egg yolks and avoiding men or whatever. You can't really take an individual and extrapolate to a population or actually extrap- extrapolate any meaningful lessons from an N of one. So my approach, literally spending years to find the verified areas where people are living the longest, um, then uh, interviewing probably 50 of the top longevity experts in the world, getting the available academic literature and understanding in each of these five blue zones, what the population has been doing that explains their longevity. Then once you get that sort of cake recipe, what they eat, how they interact, their spirituality, their purpose, et cetera, once you get their their cake recipe, then we kiss a lot of frogs until we find the prince and the princess whose life happens to represent the master formula. And then you tell that one person's story. And people, people like a story, as you know. Uh, Don Hewitt, founding uh, producer of 60 Minutes, when he was asked what the success of, of 60 Minutes was, he boiled it down to four words. Tell me a story. You find a centenarian who represents the whole, then make sure that he or she has a great story, you tell their story. And through the telling of that story, you're actually delivering uh, hundreds of hours of research. People don't realize that they're, they're being given a prescription for longevity, but it's, uh, it's you know, sugar-coated in a story and goes right to the heart, and that's the quickest way to the brain. Yeah, yeah, and it's true. You know, we operate at that intersection of telling stories through the head and the heart. You've got to have them both working if you want to be able to move someone to action, right? So the stories that you're telling are doing just that. If I think about how many cans of beans I have in my pantry and how many times I take a walking meeting during the day, it's because of the stories that I've heard you talk about. Exactly right. Let's go back a second because I had mentioned to you that last season we focused our entire season of shows on the intersection of communications and public health. And there's a lot of connectivity now to this new book. You talk about it as not an elimination diet, not a fitness plan, but a new way for people to look at their health and happiness. You've developed this tool that helps readers change their surroundings, set up what, I, what you call nudges, which I love that so that the healthier choice is the natural choice. That's a really tall order, right? Given how much noise we hear from the media, whether it's advertising or, or otherwise, but we're constantly being pushed the not healthier choice. 
So, so I'm curious, you know, what you think the role that communications has played in affecting our public health and how maybe this book could start to nudge us back to a healthy place. Yeah. So I, you, you know, my day job has been working with over 50 cities to uh, change their surroundings. So the healthy choice is the easy, easy choice. So I actually get paid by big companies like United Healthcare, Blue Cross Blue Shield to go into a city and lower the BMI. And when you lower the BMI by 1% and it's in a city of a million people, you save about 20,000 heart attacks, all of which cost $120,000. So you don't need a lot of movement at the population level to save a lot of money. And we get paid uh, according to how much we actually lower BMI. So it's not it's not just a rah-rah campaign that evaporates. So we use communications to sort of herald our coming. And, and um, uh, we don't buy a lot of advertising, but our approach is uh, getting city council to adopt policies that favor the healthy choice over the unhealthy choice. We get schools, restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches to go for Blue Zone certification. And in many cases, we can get half of all the businesses are doing it. And then we get about 15% of the population to take a Blue Zone pledge. Through doing that work, we become so ubiquitous that people know what Blue Zones means. And, and that's really uh, the, the lesson. And the core insight that I harvested from spending nearly 20 years in these Blue Zones is in none of the Blue Zones are people disciplined. They don't have diets. They don't have exercise programs. They don't call an 800 number for supplements. Uh, they don't have a greater sense of individual responsibility, which we hear a lot from politicians. They live about eight to 10 years longer than us, a fraction of the rate of heart disease, a fraction of the rate of breast cancer and dementia. These are real populations, and we have the data. So this isn't some you know, South Beach diet uh, huckster selling us crap. This is... This is um, hard data, and they achieve these extraordinary health outcomes not because they're thinking about it, not because they have focus of mind or great tension or resolution. They simply live in environments where the healthy choice is the natural choice, as you put it, pointed out. And with that insight, one thing I know for, for sure, if we don't do anything, our countries in deep doo-doo we're spending $18 trillion a year on largely avoidable diseases. That number just keeps going up. You know, there's all kinds of political pressure right now to spend yet more on Medicare. And rather than continuing to shovel money into the, to trying to fix the problem, to say, okay, we know these populations have a fraction of the rate of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, and dementia. Why don't we focus on trying to set up our cities and our workplaces so they look more like a blue zone, so that the foods that are cheapest and most delicious are healthiest. They're whole food plant-based, that I'm incented to walk, bike, or take public transportation to work. I'm disincented to implode into my device, but I'm nudged into healthy social interactivity, that uh, instead of going through life rudderless, Somebody take some time with me to help me identify, do the internal work to identify what you're good at, what you like to do, your passions, an outlet for those passions. And, and it's probably not work in America, by the way, for most Americans. 
It's uh, probably something else. But to help people, as you pointed out at the top of the show, to, to I know their ikigai and live their ikigai. That's, what's, that's what, what works. That's what brings joy to life, what makes life worth living. And it also, we know scientifically that it also produces a longer life. The, the, the maximum average life expectancy in the United States right now is about 93. Uh, but we're dying at, you know, life expectancy is 79 or 80. And so we're leaving more than a dozen years on the table. Those, those years are ours to take. And by the way, if we're doing the right thing, those years will be good years. All right. So you mentioned Ikigai. We're going to come back to that in one second, but I've got one follow-up for you on the Fort Worth story and, and so many of these other cities that you're working in. What I think is so neat, I want to ask you about is, you know, you're talking about large-scale systems change, but we do a lot of work with organizations on systems change. And when it comes down to it, it really feels like systems change is human change, right? Like the human has to change in order for then the system to change. And, and it really feels like you're working at that intersection that you're understanding, or, or maybe it's, it's how you're working with organizations and with the systems for them to see that there's this opportunity, right? That if you look at the, the pro-con benefit, the pro of changing the system far outweighs any risk associated with it or the barriers associated with it. What are the barriers that you do find inside cities or with individuals who are thinking about making this large-scale change but realize what they're up against? So I just, a little bit of a refinement. I, actually, we don't rely on the human change. We basically assume that the human is, is genetically hardwired to seek sugar, fat, and salt, and take rest whenever he can, because that's how we evolved for 25,000 generations. So uh, the, the classic approach is to either educate or guilt or incent individuals to change their behavior. We don't do that because it hasn't worked. It, it, it hasn't worked long-term, big-scale in anywhere that I've known. So we go about changing that person's um, environment uh, and setting up nudges and defaults at the population level. So people don't even realize their behavior has been modified. But all of a sudden, the healthy choice is cheaper, the healthy choice is more accessible, and the ugly choice is not con relentlessly trying to get them to do bad things. So that's the approach. So how, do, how are we successful? The first big insight uh, we had is we audition cities. In other words, a city could offer us $100 million. And if they're not ready, we will not come in. So before we start, we interview the mayor, the city council, the city manager, the superintendent of schools, the police chief, the big CEOs. And we say, we're coming in here. And quite honestly, we're going to limit your freedom to do unhealthy things. And if they want maximum freedom, we're not right for them because we're trying to engineer better choices at the population level. The payoff is huge, but there are some communities that value uh, sort of economic growth and, and um, you know, the right to sell anything they want to sell to people, whether or not it's good for them. Um, so uh, we audition cities. We only pick the cities that are most ready. We've only been about 60 cities so far and over 400 have applied and then once they say they're ready then your work is easy uh, you're you're not fighting a political uphill battle for the next five years it always takes us five years by the way that's the 
the minimum engagement when we come in because we're trying to change streets. So they're built not just for cars, but for humans. And that takes some time. We're trying to change the uh, local laws so that you limit junk food marketing and poor neighborhoods. You see right there, you can, you can lower obesity rates by 10% by just getting rid of billboards that kids aren't marketed to junk food relentlessly that there's a, thousand foot no fly zones outside of school so um, the kids aren't tempted by the the junky food truck when uh, the the cafeterias tried so hard to create healthy lunches for kids so um, we just try to look at every micro environment in a city and favor the healthy choice and disfavor the unhealthy choice there's some individual barriers but once the city says we want to do this we can get a lot done so you are truly creating more blue zones. You're recreating the environment that you have found in the blue zones. And at the top, you mentioned the the islands that are the blue zones, right? The all of the environment that has to to take hold for that blue zone to exist. And I admit, you know, I don't live in one of your blue zones, but I live in a place where I've got walking trails, I've got nutritious food, I've got clean air, I've got farmers markets, I've got doctors offices, I've got all the elements that could help play into a blue zone. What I'd love for you to check in on, because for all those cities that you've worked on, I've got to imagine that you've been inside some deserts too, right? So you've been inside cities and communities that are food deserts, provider deserts, news deserts. Do you find that it it works to start to set up a blue zone, the island ideal, even in a place that has been limited in its resources? That's where the most opportunity is. The, the least healthy places are the places that benefit the most. Um, Fort Worth, Texas, as you point out. So yes, there was a, a huge food desert in the middle of Fort Worth, uh, but it turns out there were several uh, retail, you know, sort of like convenience stores that wanted to be part of the solution and not just continuing to fuel the problem. And we helped them uh, put in vegetable fruit and vegetable vending this often meant that a cooler had to be purchased we help them purchase the cooler and uh, they found that among these poor people who are on food stamps and so forth and before all they had were candy bars and cigarettes that actually they love having access to fresh fruit and vegetable they sell out every day and it was good business for them and it was great for our goals because we created an oasis in a food desert walkability and bikeability People often think, well, what I, what I want is a car. But the reality is, for poor people, they're spending usually 25 to 30% of their annual income keeping that car running with insurance and gas and upkeep, et cetera. You dispor- disproportionately do poor people a favor when you make cities safe to walk, safe to bike, uh, and you provide good public transportation. Because that takes away an enormous expense, and it also engineers in physical activity into their lives. We know that people just walking or taking public transportation to work have about 20% lower rates of heart disease. For many Americans, that's the most exercise they're going to get. You can hope they go to the gym, and but it doesn't happen. And if you look at the data that people who do belong to gyms, they, they show up less than twice a month on average. So it's not really... It's not really a solution. The solution is making physical activity mindless, making uh, it cheaper and easier to buy beans and grains and make minestrone or, or beans and rice, which are 
everybody can afford if they just know how to make them taste delicious they'll eat them make it hard to be isolated nudge people into social interaction and that's largely the result of setting up the right environment so this this new book is really practical it literally lays out for people day by day what they need to do in this first 30 days and then takes people over the course of their year to to really reset a lifestyle and um, if you are a friend or family member of mine be prepared because you are likely getting this book for the holidays. And we've already told our team, actually, that we're starting in on a a team-wide Blue Zones challenge come January. Um, It's it's cool what you've set up, but I want to hear from you more why this felt like the next step in this Blue Zone journey. Well, I've largely been focused on on Blue Zone City project work. And uh, I, I recently partnered with the Adventist Health System, who've taken over the operations which has left me free to do more writing. And um, I realized that this central idea of don't try to change your mind, change your environment. I've been doing it at the city level. It could be done at the individual level. So at the, you know, around December or January, people start thinking of New Year's resolution. And typically I'm going to get on a diet or exercise more. And by the way, um, Statistics show that when you start a New Year's resolution on January 1st, the vast majority have forgotten about that resolution by January 19th. So it's never a very long term. What this book does is I marshal in about 30 evidence-based ways for you to set up your home, your workplace, your bedroom, your kitchen, your social life, so that the healthy choice is the easy choice. So I do spend a little bit of time to... Uh, share what the world's longest of people do, their diet, how they eat. You know, we have the Blue Zone Food Guidelines. We do challenge people to go whole food, plant-based for a month. The payoff is within one day, they feel more energetic. Within five days, their digestive system is working better. They're thinking clearer. Within about three weeks, the cholesterol and mortality rate is down about 10%. And within a month, they should expect to lose between five and eight pounds. Now, this isn't like a a, uh, dramatic diet, but it's a sustainable way to lose weight and to get healthier. But then the bulk of the book shows you how to set up your life so it's easy to live this way. And that's the key, because we're all busy. As you pointed out before, we are bombarded by information about health, you know, and often these these studies refute themselves every day. We pick up the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or turn on Fox or CNN. There's always some new uh, health insight for us that often refutes what we heard before. Uh, this is evidence-based way to set up your life, focus on it, and you can forget about it because the healthy choice would be the easy choice from there on out couple minutes left and I want to go where we stated at the top and where I'd love to end, which is on Ikigai and purpose. And for folks who are listening, I have shared this with my team before, but when I first discovered your book and read about the concept of Ikigai from your your learning in Okinawa, it came at a time for me that I was thinking about where am I going? What is my purpose? What What is my point here? What am I going to leave behind? You know, big questions I was trying to figure out. And that led me into doing a lot more research and thinking into the kind of company I wanted to have, the kind of work I wanted to do, um, and the kind of uh, decisions I could make day to day to to really cement and clarify that purpose. And so for me, I have determined that 
I operate as, you know, what I love to do is be a communicator. I love to make connections. I love to help people find their greatest impact in life. What I think I'm pretty good at is telling those stories and helping organizations tell their stories. What I think the world needs is more truth to be told, right? More understanding of the the real world around us and, and empathy for that real world experience that people have. And then thankfully, what I can get paid for is to be a consultant, to be able to do that work, right? So if I think about how that concept has shaped my work now into leading a B Corporation, I want to hear about your path on on your Ikigai and, and what that's been like for you over time. Well, first of all, let me salute your path because uh, I love the fact that you were intentional and you're following your values and your passions and, and you're changing the world one organization at a time. So salute there. But um, I've been very clear probably since I've been about 30 years old that my passion is uh, finding the traditional peoples of the world and learning their wisdom. A lot of these traditional ways of life are disappearing, but there, in many cases, there is a millennia of observed human history and uh, patterns that have worked for civilizations for dozens and dozens of, of generations. And I, my passion is capturing it and putting it to work in today's life. That's my ikigai. And every job I've had since 1990 has uh, has pretty much followed that. Not that I've ever really worked, but <laughs> but uh, all my projects are are very much focused on uh, bringing wisdom to life and putting it to work. So here we are at the end. I've got one final question to to have you leave us with a thought. We here we are, end of twenty twenty one. We've had a couple tough years on a lot of levels. But if you think about where we are getting ready to head into a new year, you've got this new book out, you've got so much energy around your work. What gets you excited and hopeful for what's ahead? I think this pandemic is going to be something that uh, we'll look back and think of the good old days of the pandemic. A lot of us um, uh, left the work we were doing and uh, thought about our next act and our, 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 um, working more purposefully. Um, a lot of families reconnected. They, the, the disappearing art of learning how to cook at home came back when we were, when all the restaurants were closed. And that's a gift. Um, easy thing. Uh, I think a lot of people now, you know, you know, office buildings, a lot of them are, are boarded up or, or half vacant. And that's because I think people, a, get to work at home and be closer to their family and friends, but also they've taken jobs that fit better with who they are, what they're doing. I'm optimistic that this coronavirus will burn itself out. Uh, what, what not exactly burn itself out, but it's going to be something that, like a flu, we're going to live with it, but it's going to be, uh, we're going to get used to it and adapt to it. And we're going to put this whole experience in our quiver and say, that's our new arrow of wisdom. And we'll go forward uh, having learned from that, having endured, and uh, having transcended it. And continuing to be nudged in the right, healthy direction, right? That's the secret. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're you're a busy man moving from thing to thing, and I appreciate so much your ability to give me 30 minutes of your time. Thank you. Well, I, I, it was a real delight to talk to you. And, and uh, people like you are the people who are making this world a better place. So thank you for including me. 
and introducing me to your audience. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Nimra Haroon and the Mission Partners team in association with True Story FM, engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Balloon Planet and Josh Leak. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, I hope you will consider doing just that for this show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply to share the show with a friend or a colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.